Chapter Ten of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty-five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, A.D. nineteen twenty-two to nineteen twenty-five. George the Sixth visits France. Government in France. New laws. Buildings. Encouragement of arts and sciences. George gives both freedom and happiness to France. Fini. A truly benevolent disposition knows no bounds to see the desire of diffusing happiness. George the Sixth longed to see France in possession of that ease and plenty which were now the distinguished characteristics of Great Britain. The Duke of Devonshire, it is true, had governed in that kingdom with abilities and integrity, but it was not in his power to execute the designs of the king, nor was his genius adapted to the business. His Majesty determined, therefore, to make a trip thither, and to increase the splendour of his court, he took with him great part of the nobility of the kingdom. On his arrival at Paris he fixed his residence at the Louvre, but was disappointed in finding that very few of the first nobility of France waited on him. His court was crowded with Frenchmen, but not men of great importance. George could not condemn this mark of their affection for their former sovereign but like a wise and benevolent prince resolved to conquer their disaffection by his clemency and the mildness of his government. The kings of France had been absolute monarchs for many centuries. The Parliament of Paris had formerly raised commotions in the kingdom by their obstinacy in refusing to register the royal edicts. But this appearance of liberty was now entirely at an end. George determined to make the French love him and he knew that would be impossible if he did not give them more happiness than his predecessors, and make them no longer regret the loss of their former kings. His management in France was certainly admirable. At the same time that he secured himself against all insurrections, he gratified the conquered people. He raised many French regiments. He promoted a multitude of French officers in English and German corps. He made a mixture of the two nations in almost everything except religion, but he never shocked the people with any innovations in that tender point. He had indeed long laid the plan of rooting superstition and enthusiasm out of the kingdom, but never thought of changing the established religion. By an edict which was registered in Parliament he gave all his French subjects the privilege of both reading and publishing any books with the same limitations as in England. This edict contained the substance of the English laws on that head, and was declared irrevocable. It is difficult to conceive the effect which this change had at Paris. A sullen silence had reigned throughout the kingdom, but almost at once it was succeeded by a boundless torrent of flattery and invective. The king looked on with calmness, and was highly satisfied at the pleasure the whole nation experienced in this new liberty. A multitude of indirect libels on him were printed but many ingenious men defended George, and gave him excessive praise for this instance of his clemency and philosophic disposition. The lower people were shocked at the great number of books that swarmed from the press which ridiculed and subverted the Roman Catholic religion, but the sensible part of the nation rejoiced to find that no subject was so sacred as to bar common sense from the consideration of it. Every man published his sentiments with the utmost freedom on all subjects. The king, who had a sublime notion of morals and religion, ordered a vast number of the best English books to be translated into French, and printed at the Louvre. Those spread with the other publications over all France opened the eyes of the more sensible, and even awakened some of the ignorant, to a sense of the absurdities of popery. 
The Abbe de Mancière, particularly by His Majesty's directions, composed a most elaborate dissertation to prove that monasteries and nunneries were most pernicious to the state. The king seemed an enemy to no part of religion but that which was prejudicial to the civil state of the kingdom. This noble freedom which the French had so long lost gave rise to a thousand useful and excellent treatises, both in morals and politics. All other arts were also benefited by it. But it was not in this article alone that George showed his desire of making the conquered nation happy. By an edict which will be immortal, he introduced the laws of England into France with no changes, but such as respected religion and his own authority. He even gave up every prerogative which he did not possess in England, except the raising of money. Parting with that would have been dangerous so soon after his possession. As the French nation had always preserved a notion of liberty, and had never fallen absolutely into slavery, the effect of these changes was surprising. They seemed to enjoy them with particular exultation, as they came from the hand of their conqueror. Happy for France that it was conquered by such a patriotic king. The only set of men who at first appeared discontented with these changes was the nobility. They were no longer the absolute lords on their own estates they had heretofore been. The meanest peasant was now free and could not suffer but by judgment of his peers. But in return for the loss of that power which it was dishonorable to use, they had many noble privileges confirmed to them unknown to their ancestors. They were no longer the slaves of their monarch, and the first to bear his fury. The king himself had no more authority over them than over the lowest mechanic. How unusual was it in France to see uncorrupt judges going the circuits of the provinces who enjoyed their salaries fixed for life, and had no inducement to favor either side. During this residence in France, so happy for the kingdom, the king built a very noble palace at Fontainebleau. Footnote. Apparently our author is ignorant of the very noble palace already existing there since the time of Francis I. In footnote. And another on the banks of the Rhone. He also repaired the Louvre and many other public buildings, and neglected nothing that could add to the ornament of the kingdom. The fortifications of the frontier towns from the north of Holland to the Mediterranean, which had in many provinces fallen into decay, were repaired and even augmented. The royal ports were filled with workmen of all sorts. Great numbers of ships from men of war to merchantmen were built. His Majesty's navy was continually augmenting, and as the two nations now possessed an immense trade, there was no danger of ever finding a scarcity of sailors. The monarch who in England had been so great and magnificent a protector of the arts and sciences, acted worthy of himself in France. The French nation had enjoyed more establishments in favor of literature such as academies than Great Britain, but they were in general only honorary. Men of the greatest genius were often members of many academies, but almost starving for want. George therefore found no want of fresh establishments, but only the fixing certain salaries on the seats of those already in being. This he did with a liberality unknown in France, and greatly to his honor. Few conquerors were ever celebrated for such excellencies as this great monarch. The panegyrics on him, which were numerous and just, did not turn on his victories, but his philosophic disposition and his civil virtues. Prejudice and partiality, which so often throw a veil over the real characters of princes, can find few faults with this great king's administration. His conduct, especially in France, has been blamed by many politicians, but no philosophers. 
In fact, George ought rather to be considered as a philosophical king than a consummate politician. He had too many virtues to shine greatly in the latter character. Yet those men who have blamed so much the political conduct of the king in giving liberty to a great kingdom speak merely as politicians. But George's memory will outlast every reflection of this nature, and virtue will triumph in spite of the most scandalous misrepresentation. In some instances his conduct was certainly faulty, but he never committed an error which did not proceed from a good motive. However, the strongest proof of the excellence of all his opinions is the universal praise that is bestowed on his memory by all foreign historians. His name was as dear to France as it was to Great Britain. Fortunate nations to possess a king formed by nature to make the world he governed happy. End of chapter 10 End of The Reign of George the Sixth, 1900-1925, a forecast written in the year 1763, by Samuel Madden. Recording by Philip Gould.